0: the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940, 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking.
1: Big eagle on war it loud. the Romeo
2: shall we dance?
3: You are listening to the Citrep Podcast. Your source for everything related to historical wargaming. Whether you are looking for the latest wargaming news, reviews, painting tutorials, or playthroughs, you will hear about it right here. So grab your favorite beverage or brush and let's hit it.
4: All right, everybody. This is Bill, SitRep6, and you are listening to our D-Day special for the SitRep podcast. Joining us is the crew. We have Marty and Chris stateside, and then we have Big Jim, our historical editor, down in sunny Florida, and over in the grand old country of the UK, England, slash, Britain, slash, whatever else you like to call yourself, uh, Mr. Gaz. Guys, welcome to the D-Day special. Are you ready? Yes! Let's do it. Right.
1: Yeah,
5: let's get it, do it. All right. It done. Okay.
4: So... As typical on this show, we like to go around the table and see what everybody's been up to recently, since you had an extra week. Um, just real quick, this is our D-Day special. We'll be talking about a lot of things D-Day related, but there's also another major battle that was happening in this week, weekend, uh, two years prior to D-Day, and that was Midway. Um, I'd say that was almost one of the big turning points in naval warfare during World War II in the Pacific. Um, because we pretty much knocked out most of the Japanese major carrier in the Pacific at that time. So, um so that's another one to think about as well. So, we got a lot to talk about. So, let's go ahead and start um Jim, why don't you start us off today? We'll save your voice as much as we
1: can.
5: Okay, so what have I been up to lately? Um a little bit of painting, believe it or not. Uh I finally finished that BMP that uh community member madman sent to me a little while ago that came out pretty good um it came painted uh already it was like a a pre-built uh miniature 20 millimeter but i wanted to do it again because it came in specific um, uaf markings ukrainian armed forces so i wanted to have that bmp you know bmp is obviously a very common vehicle they use it all over the place Mm -hmm. um so i wanted to have it a little bit more uh generic so that I could use it in, you know, uh, former Yugoslavia, Georgia, Ukraine. I could use it in all the Eastern European hotspots. So repainted that. That came out pretty good. Um, and we've been uh, building and running a lot of games. We ran Anzio for Memorial Day last week, and we are running San uh for today, uh, later on um, in Valorant Victory, the first uh, the first major, or not even major town, the first town in general. Um, that the Allies managed to specifically 82nd Airborne managed oh, yeah. to uh, liberate for the uh, yeah liberate uh, in France during Operation Overlord. So a lot of design, a lot of research, and uh, a little bit of painting. But um, yeah, mostly design and research.
4: Very cool. Very cool. All right, Chris, how about you, bud?
2: Not doing much. Believe it or not.
4: No, we believe it. Pretty much. We we get it. Marty?
3: All right. So uh, I have uh, completed my last uh, session of physical therapy, and I am starting to get back into the groove of things. I have not yet started painting. I still have a little bit of uh, uh, numbness in my left arm and hand. So holding small things uh, for fine motor movements can be a little bit of a challenge, as well as I can't. Uh, I have to ma- make sure I maintain good posture, or else my pinch nerve acts up.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But uh, in lieu of painting, because I got some shit that I'm, I am so ready to get back at. Uh, I uh, cleaned up the hobby room a little bit. I, I have made my space ready for work. So I'm I'll look. Uh, I haven't done much, but I, uh, you know, I've, I've got the area prepped and ready to go now, and because it was a hot mess, not gonna mm-hmm. lie. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting into it and uh, being able to get some painting done here shortly. And uh, we talked about this a while ago. Uh, you know, I had a friend of mine who uh, is a SF operator who uh, got shot down, a helicopter got shot down on his uh, last deployment to Afghanistan. And we were looking at doing a diorama slash game table of that. So I've kind of been working on the planning for that. And because of the space, uh, I I can't do it in twenty eight millimeter. So so I think maybe I'm gonna have to scale that to like fifteen. Okay. That I've been doing. So I've been doing the math on on that and trying to figure out that layout so that way I don't have a board that's twelve feet long and eighty wide. Sure. Gotcha. But that's uh that's where I've been at uh, uh this past couple of weeks. All right. So you gonna have seven. to get a new Chinook helicopter model. Oh, so yeah, no, that can that order got cancelled. As it turns out, it's been on back order for uh two months, so I'm like uh, the hell with it and I just canceled it. What scale is uh fifteen millimeter? Uh one one hundred yeah. question mark? Yeah. One yeah, one
4: Rough,
5: roughly one to one hundred.
4: Yeah. Okay. We could always three D print a Chinook if we need to or whatever you need. Actually we could three D print just about everything. There's so many files available now, so you know, if you can't find what you're looking yeah, for. Well, I mean, a lot of the Team Yankee stuff that's out there, you could probably, well, <sighs> um yeah, we could figure it out.
3: So. Oh, hey, speaking of Team Yankee, so, uh, as you know, uh, or may know, uh, I'm the commander of our uh, DFW post, mm-hmm. and we had our district meeting
1: three weeks ago-ish,
3: yeah, and uh, so after our, our meeting— uh, I was having a, a cocktail with a, a couple of the boys. And as it turns out, we have a, uh, a guy that doesn't normally go. He was, uh, uh, there as a delegate for his commander who couldn't make it. Okay. And, and this guy says, Hey, uh, you know, cause he, I had my set rep podcast hat on. He's like, what's that about? Cause he thought it was something military related. And I'm right. like, yeah, sort of. So I kind of explained to him what the show is about, and whatnot. And he's like, so you use like little little models and toys to to play games, like, essentially. Models
1: and
3: toys. Say uh, toy one more time. Right? However, <laughs> he's like, so my dad passed away a few months ago, and he's got boxes and boxes of these little tanks. I'm wow. like, Whoa. go on, <laughs> and I I think it's like Team Yankees scale stuff and he's like yeah they're all metal they're about an inch and a half two inches long and i'm like really well so he's like i i was you know gonna just get rid of them i'm like well i'm your guy go ahead and get rid of them <laughs> so uh so so he he and i are uh our schedules have not uh been able to sync up yet but i have no idea what it is he hasn't sent me a picture or anything yet so whenever i whenever i get that i, I will have something uh new to to share, and we'll see what we can use it for. Very cool. I'm kind of excited about that.
4: Yeah. Well, if they're metal, they're not Team Yankee. Uh, Team Yankee's all resin and plastic. But you said an inch, inch and a half. I mean, I'm looking at my GHQ. I think that's too big for GHQ size. So they could be, uh, Jim, help me out here. What would you think? Um,
5: well, if they're if they're too big for GHQ and they're uh, an inch and a half is definitely too small for Team Yankee, which is 15 mil, 1 to 100. They might be 10 mil.
4: Yeah. Well, that's cool either way. They yeah. could definitely be used in something. I
3: mean, right? Yeah, and and the price is right. He's like, oh, we, we just got to get together. I'll give them to you if you're going to use them. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> we'll, ju- we'll just add this to the armory, so to speak.
4: Very cool. All
6: right.
2: <laughs> in the armory. Yeah.
6: Sir Gaz? Hello, hello.
2: Um,
6: so I blew the dust off some Blood Red Skies uh, midweek.
1: Uh-huh.
6: Took out some Messerschmitt 109Es. Had a play around one of them. Did uh, some color testing on it. Uh, got to the end of the session. were happy with it. So that's going into a bio strip pot <laughs> <laughs> this week.
4: Why were you not happy um, with it? Just so people can uh, understand.
6: Um so I tried doing a little bit of speckling with uh, some sponge, but I believe the sponge was too soft. Okay. So it didn't give me the level of control that I wanted. Ah. And the amount of pressure I would apply with them in, I was putting speckling where I didn't want it.
1: Gotcha.
6: Uh, I tried a little bit of it on the back of the wings. Weren't happy with that either. But I've sort of isolated down the basic color scheme that I want. Um, tried some stuff with a contrast that worked initially. The yellow and where I want the yellow on the aircraft, I was happy with as well. So when I'm painting a group of models, I think there's six in the box set from the Blood Red Skies,
1: mm-hmm.
6: I generally paint one completely, doing changes and chopping around and um, resetting with the prime colors that you can paint from a pot, certain areas that I'm not happy with. Mm-hmm. And then once I've finalized a full model from start to finish, I make notes as I go. And I have a, it's a, like a, a separate notebook that I keep my all my paint um, recipes, I suppose is probably an easy way of saying it, for a miniature or a miniature's um, uh, style and color scheme. And then I can always go back to it in the future and apply the same again or add aircraft of the same type or take away. Uh, and adjust it over time as well. So, just not happy with the overall look of it. The I did two layers on the spine of the aircraft that darkened it down too much. Some of the speckling wasn't where I wanted it to be, and I hadn't established where exactly I wanted the yellow. I was just throwing colours at it. But the yellows, I'm happy with the colour scheme, just not where I put it initially. And uh, we, you know, it was it was a it was a, a fine session. I plan to try and use that this week to do a video of me stripping it. So oh, we're going to go the day. other way. All right. So I'll chuck it in a pot on my table one night uh, this week, uh-huh. get the camera over it, and then do just a short – it'll be a short video we'll probably put up on the channel set about stripping and an option for stripping that's Very available cool. in the UK <laughs> and maybe in other places as well for plastics. That's that way, So
3: are you going to do like a time-lapse on that, Gab? Yeah,
6: I was going to speed it up. So cool. you'll see me sort of dunk it in. Um, I'm going to see if I can get a small digital clock to put next to it so you can see the actual 45 minutes later we take it out we brush it in soapy water we put it back in you know I do that a couple of times to see how clean we can get the model
3: Very nice That's awesome So it was uh, it
6: was also primed with spray uh, I think what color did I use for the spray I want to say I used it was either gray sear spray or wraith bone. So it was either a cream or a very pale gray. So I'm interested to see if I can get that back off as well, if the if the the agent for cleaning the paint off also lifts some of the prime color. So I'll use the aircraft that I've not primed yet, because mm-hmm. the other five have not been primed at all, as a, uh, a measuring stick, a yardstick, for how clean we get this model and how many attempts it takes.
3: Sure. Well, that would so be interesting. Very cool.
6: Yeah. And uh, on top of that, my friend has dropped off a book because later this year or towards Christmas, he's looking to do a little bit of a campaign. So he dropped off a campaign book for Bolt Action, the Sea Lion campaign, uh, for me to have a look at what Germans I've got to to field a force against the British.
4: Interesting. What, all right. What's, uh, what was Sea Lion?
6: Oh, I have to... Might get Jim in here, depending on how croaky is. I've got the book in front of me, luckily. So, if Jim's uh, feeling a little under the weather, he can he can sort of step back. Um, so, it was Sea Lion was a potential German invasion of Britain in 1940. Okay.
1: Um,
6: it was a perceived threat. So the book itself is built around the perceived threat, not a threat that actually happened. Uh, and that means that you've got a lot of stuff in here that are units that. Um, may physically have existed, but didn't ever touch English soil, essentially, or landed in the UK. Oh, okay. So you've got all sorts of forces, from the standard regular stuff that you'd see mm-hmm. to the coastal defense forces of the UK that obviously never engaged in that sense. Okay. Um, for the German side, you have very, um, oh, what was the film where they used a submarine to get into the small English hamlet?
4: Are you talking um, uh, uh, where e- – not where Eagle's there. The Eagle has landed.
5: The Eagle has landed where German paratroopers.
4: Yeah. Right. But uh, 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 Donald Sutherland came in by – no, Donald Sutherland came by parachute. Who? Somebody came by submarine at the, one point, right? They were going to escape
6: by – Yes, escape by They
5: were going to escape by e-boat, like yeah. a German motorboat. Yeah. But I don't uh, think there was any submarine involved.
6: Oh, okay. Um, at least not so, so it kind of has that sort of feel to it, as in it's got a little, it's a little sketchy. It's a little outside the box in some of the forces that are in the, the options for this. And it's, it's, you know, it's got its own campaign book. It's it's just ready to go. Oh, very cool. So I've got a basic set of uh, German early war.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: And, uh, Mark Fields, uh, he has a home guard force, um, which I love. Is <laughs> he got With dad's Black, army? Um, yes. He's Excellent. done a dad's army force, the whole force <laughs> is dad's army, including miniatures that are militia, and nice. they're the local farmers, and they've all got hoes and rakes, yep, and they yep. come out with, <laughs> with all that as well. So there's, some, there's some, awesome. really, some really nice characterful miniatures. There's trucks with, you know, mounted vicars on the back in what looks like an upside down dustbin,
1: yeah.
6: uh, which is kind of just thrown together as best they could. So it's cool. it's got some really nice character, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll see about getting some games, and then we'll see what the uh, the ability for me to get it on camera is.
1: Very cool.
5: We did a uh, a full five part um, Operation Sea Lion analysis article series on on tabletop a little while ago, mm-hmm. and um, it definitely could have happened. Um, it absolutely could have happened. Whether or not it would have worked or not is the issue. Right. Um, could the initial landings have been successful? Absolutely, because you have to remember how absolutely not prepared um, Great Britain was at the time. Um, they had just pretty much lost everything they had as far as heavy equipment and vehicles at Dunkirk. Um, they had a small force of 20 like twenty or 30,000 trained troops. They had a big force of militia and uh, tr- troops that were being trained, troops that were being rapidly organized. Um, to sort of fill in those losses, but they were often armed with nothing bigger than than a rifle. Um, So anything bigger than a Vickers machine gun, they just didn't have. Um, You can't go up against Fallschirmjager divisions with that. You can't go up against the bulk of German 16th Army, which was the unit uh, flag to carry out that invasion. Um, Whether or not the British Navy could have stopped such an invasion is up for debate, um, a lot of people like to say, "Well, the British Navy would have definitely stopped the invasion." I find that highly doubtful. Um, I, however, I don't think that Germans could have maintained uh, the, uh, the 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 impetus of their advance in in the in the face of uh, of Royal Navy uh, pressure. Um, the, the Luftwaffe and the U-boats could have kept that channel open for a day or two, but you need more than a day or two to uh, to conduct an actual invasion. Um, you have to have that thing open for months, if not years. And I don't think the Germans could have done that. Also, the British Navy was a lot weaker than a lot of people uh, tend to remember. Um, their battleships, what they had, they had almost no carriers. They had like three or like maybe two or three, but even their battleships were very old and they were scattered all over the world. Um, what was actually available in the home fleet wasn't very much. Um, I think it's a lot more possible than people realize at least to start. Mm-hmm. However, um, <sighs> Uh, barring some kind of political collapse in, in Great Britain, which wasn't going to be likely after Dunkirk and after Churchill took over before Churchill takes over, you have that whole uh, Chamberlain thing. They were, yeah, the, the Germans were going to reinstall somehow Edward the VIII. I mean, there's this whole, it, it almost gets into the realm of fantasy at that point. Um, but outside of some sort of a, of a, of a political or a morale collapse, Um, in England itself or in Great Britain, which doesn't seem very likely, um, I don't think it would have succeeded in the long run. But to start with and for a game, it definitely could have happened. Absolutely.
4: Yeah, no, I agree.
5: Um, You know, and
4: Gaz, along that theme, something for you, buddy.
5: (laughs) Uh, Real quick before we move forward, and that's assuming the Germans won the Battle of Britain. Which What's of that? course they didn't. Yeah. That's assuming the Germans won the Battle of Britain, which of course they did not. Yeah. So there's a little
4: uh quick clip of uh who you ki- think you're kidding Mr. Hitler from Dad's Army TV show. Can't play too much or else get smacked in the, you know. So uh as far as me real quick to wrap this up, um I have been busier and busier at work. It's ridiculous. Um but I have been doing some uh research on um i'm going to i got a special edition miniature that came with the um uh epic battles american civil war starter set um it's i believe it's like a german soldier and a british soldier like at uh christmas time or something like that um i'm going to film a painting where i take a, an exorbitant amount of time painting them uh, you know, it won't be one of my quick how-do-you-paint-multiple-guys-quickly. It'll be one of those, you know, I'm going to paint it to the best of my ability. And um, we're going to use it as a giveaway, um, you know, in, in a future contest. So um, I'll be working on that. Speaking of which, uh, I have not told the crew of this yet, but this is I, – I have these ideas that pop in my head literally – so Wednesday nights is our usually like our video live stream night. Um, and unfortunately, due to real-world events, uh, sometimes things get in the way. Like I had planned on doing shows the last couple of weeks. And like I said, I'm not getting home from work until 8, 9 o'clock at night. And so that's obviously way past start time. And Jim has kindly been able to fill in once or twice. And uh, gas filled in this past week. So, what I'm thinking is that we're just going to do some recorded stuff and throw those up on Wednesday night. Um, that way, nobody has to w- rush to try and get something put up and then it be a little easier. And then also, it's summertime and people are out and about doing stuff. You know, um, they want to get, especially now that COVID things are starting to relax and restrictions. Like here in Illinois, the end of this week, we go to full blown. Well, almost normalcy. You know, there's no more restrictions on capacity in restaurants and a lot of things. I mean, there will be very limited masking rules in some of the bigger public arenas like hospitals still and things like that. But so I can imagine a lot of people are going to be getting out and about to do things. Um, So, you know, there might not be a lot of live streaming participation going on. So in lieu of that, we will just put out some video content and, um, you know, whether it's a quick uh, rule book review, a painting. Uh, some gameplay. There's some games I'd like to do some videos on. So, And that way, um, you know, I can spend a few hours here, a few hours there, putting some videos together and then just posting them. And then that, hopefully that will relieve some of the stress off the team. All right. Let us um, switch gears here. So this is our D-Day special. And uh, I challenge the team to three items. Um, Gaz... What were the three items? Because I, I have two. I'm, I'm missing the third item. Uh, um,
6: so the, the three items that we were looking at discussing yes. were uh, a D-Day topic, uh, something related to D-Day itself. Yes. Um, a statement of in memory of. Yes. For somebody from that time. Yes. And uh, a military figure that you'd like to talk to.
4: Ah, perfect. Uh, past our prison. Perfect. All right. But before we get into that, You know what time it is, Gaz. It's that
6: time. I was so hoping it was my (laughs)
0: first It's news time with Gaz. Give me the latest and greatest news. Oh, boy, oh, boy, it's news time with Gaz. Come on, give it to me. Give me the news.
6: Well, uh, Gaz here to give you the news, apparently. (laughs) Um, whether you want to hear it or not, just fast forward as required. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I could mute myself. Oh, no, I can. Wait a sec. <laughs> Um So we're going to kick off this week. Um, we're going to sort of start modern and work our way back a little bit. All right. The first item for this week is Battlefront Miniatures, Team Yankee, where the West Germans are now available for, I believe, some items for pre-order and some items are starting to pop up on their store.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: This is quite a, a quite an addition, really. Um, of miniatures as a box set, and giving you the option of a West German force, and I think it's quite nice to see that they catering to the what was the you know the Berlin Wall is is sort of still a thing in that setting. Yeah. So having two different forces, one for East German, one for West German, is uh, is quite interesting to see, as a lot of companies I doubt would do that.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Cool. Uh, this new key box comes with a whole host of stuff in it. Uh, which consists of, stand by, because uh, there should be some interesting reading based on some of these words that I don't understand because they're not my natural language. <laughs> uh, so, start off easy Leopard 2A5 Panzer Zugs, you get five of them in plastic. Marder 2 Zugs, um, you get five of them in plastic. UH1 Huey transport helicopters, you get two of them in there. Nice. M109 field artillery battery, three guns. M270 MLRS rocket launcher battery, you get three of. Uh, Panzer Grenadier Zug, um, a Falsham Schäger Zug, uh, a Wieson FK 20mm Flugbear, oh, this is where it goes wrong, <laughs> Flugbear Zug, I apologize for any people out there that find offense at this, but <laughs> I can only read. Uh,
5: it's air defense, it's literally uh, the translation.
6: I'll go with that. Twenty millimetre, I was kind of I'm gonna go with a <laughs> defense as well. Um a Viesel T O W Panzer Baver Zug. And a, That's oh like a and a Canon and Jagged Panzer Zug four of. So a mix of um <laughs> a mix of quite a few vehicles there as well as some infantry support. Alright. Now at the scale it's at, as you imagined, you get a lot more armor than you do infantry, but they have definitely not skimped on their infantry. They're really nice models, as we've found in the past with their World War II ranges. And it's a nice set. It comes with everything pretty much you need in it to use the force, including cards, to give you basically a cheat sheet for that vehicle, which they do as part of both of their gaming systems, this and Flames of War. So you generally have all the information to hand or right in front of you on the edge of the table. So when you're not sure, if you're not sure what's in the force, what you need to roll, it's pretty much all on the card, as well as some special information on the back and any special abilities that are on that unit specifically. Uh, it's a nice force. I can yeah. see people getting a lot of, lot of pleasure out of that.
4: It's meant as the um, um, initial force, uh, right? As, you know, for someone to get in the game, this is a starter army.
6: Yes, it is, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Although it can be bought as individual units or will be once, once they get through this initial stage. Sure.
5: Awesome. That one that you read off, that was Panzer Abwehr? Uh,
6: let me have a look again.
5: Or Panzer be- fail. I might have I might have given the wrong translation.
6: Panzer Abwehr. Uh, yeah, A-B-W-E-K-A-Z-O. I'm sorry,
5: that's literally armor defense. So that's going to um, be some sort of anti-tank vehicle.
6: Yeah, it's a tow. It looks like it's got tow yeah. to
5: it. I think I misheard before. Sorry about that.
6: That's my bad. I could have, that was in brackets after it. I didn't get that far because there's more complicated words in that area. So I just avoided <laughs> it. Uh, so yeah, a nice little box set, lots of vehicles in, always good value for money as well. Generally battlefront Miniature starter sets, you get a really good core for almost anything that you buy as a starter set from these guys. Um, but leaving you enough pointage left to add the, the units that catch your eye or something specific that you want to cater towards. So really good. Yeah. Awesome. But, uh I'm going to move swiftly on from modern to, um, well, Second World War, strangely okay. enough.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Now, Firelock Games, uh, I believe, Bill, you and uh, Dawn are, uh, are well aware of <laughs> through Pirate and Plunder in the yep. past. And we've discussed them before in relation to that. Uh, they've just released a RPG for World War Two called War Stories. Uh, or they're building up to, should I say. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're playtesting the rules now. So War Stories is a role-playing game using the Year Zero engine that is set during the Second World War. All the background rules and scenarios and ideas needed to run a game are centred around the harrowing exploits and extraordinary adventures of the 101st Airborne Paratroopers, or alternatively you can do the 6th Airborne British Paratroopers. Uh, You can play as the valiant heroes who parachuted into Normandy during Operation Overlord in June of 1944, (laughs) and the campaign game will allow players to tell the tale of soldier characters, be them non-airborne, such as resistance fighters, the tankers, you know, uh, there's a number of options in there, not only airborne that can be played, uh, as they collectively liberate fans and drive towards victory. Uh, above all, players will be able to create moments of valour and courage, ultimately weaving their personal tales into the fabric of history from D-Day and beyond. Now, we're going to bang up a link in this as well, and the link will uh, take you to the page on Firelock. But also on there, there's a gaming group. They have a Facebook group in relation to it. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get some more information, ask questions, see the updates that are coming out. If you ping onto the Facebook group, you'll, you'll get more information as well. But something I was thinking about, not, I, don't, I rarely see World War II RPGs.
5: Yeah. It's a tough subject. And uh, I mean, yeah. I've, run, I, I've run World War II and RPG before. I ran a campaign. We called it World in Flames. It took about two years to go through. It does work, but your group, as far as an RPG group goes, your group has to uh, understand what it is you're undertaking up front. And um, an interesting thing about this particular release is you have to define a scope because if you just make up like a generic, you know, action game and you say we're going to play World War 2 and you give your characters or you, I'm sorry, you give your players pretty much whatever choice they want, your game is going to implode almost immediately. I've participated in like three or four World War 2 RPG campaigns. They all failed like on session 2. And then I finally kind of took it as a personal challenge. I'm like, "Okay, I'm going to run this and I'm going to have it done a certain way." And I ran it and it ran for about two years and we got to a successful conclusion, not without hang up challenges. Yeah. They're, you know, it's, it's tough. And uh, it's tough for a number of reasons Or really, I'll just highlight two and then I'll give the mic back. Um, number one is it's uh World War II is so huge. Okay. The group has got to come together and sort of pick out, okay, Are we all going to be British? Are we all going to be Americans? Are we going to be resistance fighters? Are we going to be Soviets? Are we going to be Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, Blue Division, Ukrainian resistance? I mean, there's like literally, you can't just come out with a book and say this is going to be World War II. This is what I think, uh, this is where I think they've definitely made the right call. They've they've started with their first, you know, release of this game um, being a relatively limited scope. You pretty much get to pick between two divisions. Really three, because between the 101st and the 82nd, there's not going to be that much difference. But they mentioned specifically the 101st and British 6th Airborne. Now, there there's going to be a lot of differences because obviously two different countries. And um, number two, the other big challenge, and this is where you run across, we even ran across this a little bit in HK Ops, is, is do military-based RPGs really work? I mean, we're, we've all been in the military. Uh, all of us here on the all of us here on on, on the podcast. Uh, I mean, in, in an RPG, if I could, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or you know some like more generic RPG, there might be a party leader, but you don't have to do what he says. Okay, if you're with a squad out in the field and you know staff sergeant says do this, there's no debate. There's no <laughs> um, there's the, the the idea of of a of a player agency in a military-based RPG really starts to fly out the window, and you have to have uh, either an, an understanding of that, or at the very least, um, you know, your, your group has to be cool with the fact that there will be somebody in charge. Yeah. Period. And uh, is that yeah, going to be else, an NPC? Or else we're
3: going to tune you up.
5: <laughs> yeah, is that going to be an an NPC? Maybe that's the, maybe that's the game master or whatever. That way, no single player like dominates the rest of the group. Well, that's cool. Uh That way, you know, you don't have you know the problems at the table that a lot of RPGs have. But at the same time, now your players feel like they're being railroaded by the game master. So, again, I've, it it is possible, and um it's it's just a little tricky to do anything military based RPG wise. And World War Two is a setting um, just because of its sheer scale. Um, I've seen people do it once or twice. Uh, okay, it works. Um, yeah, sometimes, but it's tough. And there's just a couple of things you have to keep an eye on for. That might be the reason why you don't see more of it, uh, to answer the question.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does present uh, unique challenges. My question is, what yeah. the hell? Why the 101st? <laughs> why? The 82nd made more combat Pop, jumps.
6: Three words. Band, Band,
3: of of brothers. Band
4: of Brothers. Yes. This
6: is <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely the hook, isn't it? Let's yeah,
4: Band of Brothers and Pri- name, Saving Private Ryan.
6: Let's be honest; there'll probably be guys in my unit now that may never have seen Band of Brothers because it's what before their time. Jesus. Because I feel very old when the 20, 19 and 20-year-olds <laughs> are rolling in. Yeah. Look at me, and I've served longer than they've been alive. So You're an old war dog quite, now. Quite depressing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving then on, I sir. And up, so I'm going to keep that pain for a few more years yeah. when I re-up. <laughs> so we'll move on to our final one, because I don't want to hold the news up too much, and I don't want to sort of keep loads of news points coming, so we're just going to have three today. Uh, The final one, um, we're coming back to Bolt Action. Uh, They're about to have a release. Uh, They're up for pre-order, I believe, as of yesterday. And the title of it is Incoming British and Inter-Allied Commandos. Hmm. So we're starting to see some special ops guys coming through. Uh, They've got a new sprue package. Uh, Within that, you get a whole swathe of accessories. You get the uh, green berets. Uh, of, well, whatever you paint them, but you get the braids. Uh, or you can have them wearing the comforters that were sort of, uh, they're well known for, especially for stuff like the Centers Air Raid. Amongst the sprue itself, uh, you get the Vickers K LMG, which I think is a, a lovely bit of kit and it's somewhat a bit different. Uh, Thompson SMGs, Browning high power pistols, the usual rifles, Pearts and light mortars, the two inch, uh, as well as some sort of arms set up for throwing grenades, brandishing fighting knives and machetes. So quite a nice little mix here, and you've got a little bit of play because, as, as we know from other. Uh, bolt-action releases, the head options are not restrictive, as in you have to do a mix. They generally provide enough heads to do pretty much all the models in one style or another.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: So kind of nice um, and pretty consistent in how they do that. Uh, the Link has got some painted miniature that they, they put up as well, um, and there's a great bit of them next to a, a, an item of armor uh, that has some uh, elevations and stuff down the side, uh, which is quite nice. And, um, yeah, it's, um, it's a lovely little, little set. At the same time they're releasing that, they're bringing out a couple of new bits as well. So in support of uh, the U.S. Assault Forces, there's an M8 Scott HMC coming out, um, which is based off the M5 Stuart-like tank hull with a 75 millimeter howitzer on board. Um, it looks like a great bit of kit. Um, it's quite a punchy little tank. Uh, the barrel is so short on it. Um, so, yeah, interesting to see uh, with a 50 caliber of Which
5: Which tank is this again? It
6: M8 Scott HMC.
5: Yeah, uh, heavy heavy motor carriage is HMC, uh, is what it stands for. That's like a little. That's uh, like an M5 or an M3 Stewart tank with like a 105 millimeter assault howitzer on it, or something like that. Uh,
6: 75 millimeter. 75. Howitzer, okay. Yeah, howitzer motor carriage. Nice. Um, so, so it just looks like a really nice bit of kit. Um, what I really like about it is the fact that it's also been used all the way into Vietnam. So it's something that you can transition from World War II into, you know, future gaming as well. A
5: lot of that in the Pacific as well. Yeah. That's the kind of tank where you're not going to do anything, anything against an armoured vehicle with that, but who cares? Because 99% of the time you're not up against other tanks. You're up against pillboxes, entrenchments, fortifications, buildings, and that thing will make a mess out of any kind of... uh, you know, infantry based or artillery based target much faster than, you know, your big cats will or your yeah. fireflies or your easy eights um, in most kind of games. At least I find armored direct fire, high explosive weapons like that are a lot more useful than your, uh, than your glory boy tanks of, you know, your actual tank killer and fireflies, easy eights, panthers, you know, high-velocity guns. You know, you want a nice, big, chunky, low-velocity round that makes a big explosion wherever it hits. That's going to clean out enemy entrenchments, hunkers, pillboxes that you run across a lot more often than you do enemy armor.
6: Yeah, if the scale looks right as well, Jimmy, it looks like it has quite a small footprint, so it'd be far more manageable in built-up areas to, to maneuver this thing.
5: If memory serves, it's based on either an M3 or an M5 light tank, so it's a small vehicle,
6: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the, uh, so yeah, it's based off the M5 Stuart. Uh, the one that they've they've put up here, um, but uh, yeah, great bit of kit, and as I say, it transitions from from one period of war to another, so it's kind of a good buy if you're you're looking to play a couple of different periods. Uh, in addition to that, they're uh, they're bringing out some the British Army 5.5 inch medium howitzers. Um, that was kind of a staple towards the late war, and again, they're carrying forward. So this also saw service in the Korean War, the Indo-Pakistani Wars, and the South African Border Wars. So another bit of kit that, you know, if you're looking to not only play World War II, but transitioning to other time periods, is a, is a great purchase for the British forces. Uh, I think my favourite of the stuff we're going to briefly talk about, um, I'll save till last, but so from second to last, uh, there's um, a Panzer Lair squad coming out, so the Lair division. So they've uh, decided to put together specific infantry for that, um, which I, I love because I know that was built around the Panzer Grenadier Force, that's what my Flames of War force is built around. is the is the lower divisions of uh, 1944, and uh, interesting to see them actually start to dedicate infantry to uh, certain periods and certain divisions. And I think that's a sign that they're not coming to the end, but they've pretty much covered all the generic baseline infantry types for certain forces, and then they look more towards the specialist guys, uh, the guys, you know, that were that were mounted in the half-tracks, for example, in this case, and were good for tank hunting and and all sorts, and doing dry, literal drive-bys in the back of their vehicles to engage enemy troops as well, which is, you know, something completely different. But the final one we're going to touch, which I absolutely love, because uh, Jim and I uh, literally actively hunt online. I think Marty joined in on this as well for ordnance being put into shopping trolleys and vehicles that maybe they weren't built yeah. and designed for. So the, the latest one they're releasing is the M6 Fargo, the 37 millimeter GMC mm-hmm. um, in the back of a Dodge car basically is a gun platform and it looks fantastic. Nice. <laughs> Um, apparently it was used during the Tunisia campaign uh, yeah. and saw extensive use by U.S. forces in the Pacific Theater and over 5,000 of these things were built and put together but it does look like a three-sided plate front with a gun sticking out of it in the back of a pickup essentially, well not pick a pickup, a jeep-like vehicle <laughs>
5: this, was the, uh, this was, awesome. was the dirty little secret of Lendley's right. right when the Americans first came into the war, again like you were saying Tunisia um a lot of the American tank destroyer battalions and self-propelled artillery platforms did not have any M seven priests or M 10 tank destroyers. I can't remember which one it was. We did the baptism by fire series on, on tabletop. We talked about America's first battles in world war two, and they were an absolute disaster. Yeah. Uh, Sibleta, CD Buzis, Kessarine pass. We got our asses whooped, um, big time. And, uh, there were two main reasons. Number one, we didn't listen to the British. The British told us, look, Rommel's going to come out. He's going to slap you upside the head with his little Mark 3s and his Mark 2s. Don't chase after him because when you chase after him, you're going to go over this ridgeline. He's going to have this screen of 88s, and he's going to, you know, hey, British guy, here, hold my beer. I got this, okay? And then like 10 minutes later, the Americans come back with their, you know, lips swollen up and their eyes bust it open, and they're like, okay, I'll take that beer back. Um, tell me about those 88s again. <laughs>
2: um, yeah. and and at the same time, the, the English guy goes, you call this a beer? Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, number two is we gave away
5: way too much stuff to the British. Um, there were I can't remember. I think it was the 899th. I can't remember which tank destroyer battalion it was, but it was one of those that they didn't get the right equipment until December 1943. Uh, because all of our, um, our M10 tank destroyers, or a great deal of our M10 tank destroyers, and be, especially our M7 priests, were, uh, were given away. I mean, it was the British that ended up calling them the priests. For us, it was the M7 self-propelled howitzer. Uh, we just gave them away. And um, when it came to actually putting our own armored divisions in the field, we didn't have anything left. Because our industry, as powerful as it was, was still kind of gearing up. Mm -hmm. And that first big wave of output had already been given away to all of our allies, especially the British. So you see a lot of this stuff. Yeah, T-19 is another one. They basically put a 75-millimeter howitzer in the back of a half-track. And it's like basically firing over the driver's head. Um, There's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Uh, yeah, you have the, yeah, it's terrible. It's, I, I think, I actually have, I think I, had, I actually had to make up leader counters for what you're talking about. It's like a 37 millimeter gun on the back of a Dodge big or a Dodge which a big <laughs> big well, truck. Well, I love about We're, we're supposed to fight well. tigers with this. We're <laughs> supposed to fight tigers with this, but we gave away all of our stuff. Uh, it, I love, it, it's, a, it's a dirty little secret of Lindley's.
6: Uh, I love the image that they have up, so it's worth clicking on the link and going and having a look at it because, guys, because where they've got it set up, the the gunnery's by the gun, but I imagine, and don't get me wrong, don't take this the wrong way, there's an officer sat beyond the gun screen in the back corner next to the barrel with a set of binoculars probably looking for the enemy vehicle. Mm -hmm. Now, whether the sergeant asked him to sit there or not is in question. (laughs) <laughs> you 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 go over here, sir. You just sit here, sir, and keep an eye out and tell us when the vehicle's here, and we'll pull the trigger. You know. Yeah. Do
3: you, get your binos out. Can you look for targets for us? That'd be great. <laughs> Let's go ahead and screw you while we're at it. Uh, um, uh, by the way, you're um, not allowed to speak. Don't say anything you, to the guys. from cra- are working.
5: Mean, we often talk about like these crazy technicals <laughs> or whatever. That's for like militia units or ISIS or. You know, the militia of the week, you know, terrorist group of the month or whatever. This was U.S. Army issue to frontline armored divisions, CCAs of our best PAP, our best armored divisions. That's all we had because we gave everything else away. At least, at, I mean, eventually, U.S. industry would catch up and, and we would be able to outfit ourselves as well as we outfitted our, our allies. But for a while, yeah, we were in really bad shape. I would say we, like I was there. Um, the U.S. Uh, armored Corps was in really bad shape. As far as support equipment, we always had good tanks. Well, if you call the Sherman a good tank, but when it comes to anti-tank guns, self-propelled artillery, stuff like that, it's it's bad. All through North Africa, into Sicily, and even the beginning parts of Italy, it's really bad.
6: Yeah, you were in the Pacific, weren't you? I Jim, not the uh, Tunisian one.
5: Oh, me personally, <laughs> I, I was I, I was at Valley Forge. <laughs> <laughs> was Valley yeah. Forge. yeah. <laughs> Uh, right.
6: And that rounds up the news for this week, guys.
4: Fantastic. All right, let's go ahead and hey, talk. Yeah, go ahead. Be,
3: hey, before we close it out, I have one thing that I saw uh, a couple of days ago that I wanted to, to share right quick. Uh-huh. Uh, so Spectre Miniatures and Black Studios have teamed up, and uh, Spectre is going to start offering their starter sets again, but it's going to come with some Black studio terrain cool so uh, they're gonna have uh let's see here what does it say uh so the the, the kit will include uh the insurgent kill team and dev guru so those are your figures uh-huh. uh, a second edition rule book a starter scenario handout basis dice and terrain and their terrain uh there's not like a full listing of it but there's a, a picture on their their website. And uh, you get a building, you get the like walls. A small yeah. yeah. So, I mean,
6: you know, small, you- hit, low level barricade. Uh, basically, it's a vehicle checkpoint.
3: Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. That would it be a good the, way yeah, to it set is. it it's up. It's got sure. the
6: barrier for push up and pull down, it's yeah. got the concrete palisades all done in MDF. And this was to be on the next. Uh, podcast news, actually. So, uh, yeah. Oh, way to go, Marty. Sorry, sorry.
1: Way
2: to go.
6: I, I was always trying to it Marty, that's why, all the that's why it, Gas you? is <laughs> the <laughs> news director. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Marty... Um, so,
3: stay tuned for Ganda's uh, full report.
6: We've <laughs> 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 so pretty much done everything. I've just gone across to the images of it. And everything. Wow. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it would be interesting to see um, what is actually in the full set and how it physically goes together. Um, i'm sure marty will be looking to pick that up at some uh, point
5: uh while maybe I, talking about uh, while we're still talking about technicals um just a quick shout out to uh our friend chris who has uh, chris from canada who has put out uh he, he's been yeah, 3d printing and he's he's done he's 3d printed the dushka on a uh, shopping cart
3: yep. yes the shopping cart of doom yep over there <laughs> on our discord check it out it's great yeah so I uh, like, If I thing. could
5: give this thing 20 stars, I would. I would have put in 20 little stars. Bing, bing, bing,
3: bing, 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 <laughs> Absolutely.
4: All right, Marty, okay, are you done I, running, I uh, running the, the news? news okay. All right. And on that note, okay, so because this is technically our D-Day show, um, Gaz, since you were first to put on the running order, want to talk about your items?
6: Yeah, no worries. All right. Um, so – I'm going to go through with, I'll start off with the in-memory of, um, because that'll be a a short thing. Okay. So um, for me, uh, this is in memory of Samuel Briley. That was my granddad. He Mm -hmm. was uh, Grenadier Guards. He served um, during the Second World War. Uh, Somebody I never met, he passed away sadly before I was a, I was a baby when he passed away. Mm-hmm. So although he saw me, I never, I don't have a conscious memory of him. Um, he was injured at Anzio. He lost part of his foot there, had oh, it removed wow. below the knee, uh, and on returning back to the UK, uh, was infected so badly, they then cut from his hip down, oh, so it lost the rest of his leg. Uh, and he was my father's uh, uh, father. And, um, yeah, so for, for the memory part of it, today for me is about Samuel Brunley. Uh The D-Day topic... So, I want to kick around um and it's it's something that I think is is very poignant, especially with today, being mm-hmm. the date it is, and that was uh, how effective was the ghost army for the day day landings um and I know this is this is something that's um been kept under well was kept under wraps for a very long time, so it's it's one of them that I've never actually read the what's been released directly. Um, the information that i got was from uh, basically a museum but it was not spoken publicly about until 1985 for example um and was still officially classified until the mid 90s so that says how important this potentially was um and I, jim i don't know if you've ever read into the ghost army at all
5: yeah it was called that... um it was called fusag first us army group right um and it's uh I didn't realize it was, uh, I mean, maybe the laws were different in different countries. Um, It's mentioned quite prominently, just as an example, uh, in the movie Patton, um, which came out in like 1971 or something like that, Um, although they don't go into details. So um,
6: apparently it was in a newspaper newspaper article right after the war, but no one spoke publicly about the deceivers until 1985. Um, That's from the Smithsonian um the knowledge of the 23rd headquarters special troops was then public already um it was uh still officially classified until the mid-90s but i imagine that's the minute you know the the details yeah i mean the...
5: technically speaking the composition of Chobham armor is still, t- is still classified no one really knows what's really in it we all know what Chobham armor is in our tanks but as far as like okay what? How you make it? Or what
6: like it what, yeah, how yeah, to put it together. Stealth technology, so even communications. We have a lot of stuff like that, don't we? But I know it consisted, reading through, I'll just do a sort of a brief summarization of this article. Um, uh, it basically consisted of a strength of 82 officers, around 1,023 men under the command of Colonel Harry L. Reeder. Um, it was a unique and top secret unit of the time. Uh, simulating simulating two whole divisions, approximately thirty thousand men. Uh, they use visual and sonic and radio deceptions to fuel German fuel fool German forces during World War II's final years. Uh, now, through uh, they had actually an exhibit of this, which is where I got a lot of the information from, um, which was at the Smithsonian, and it was uh, a really nice. Titled "Ghost Army: The Combat Con Artists of World War II," um, which I, I found quite alluring. Uh, and with nothing heavier than fifty caliber machine guns, they took part in twenty two large scale deceptions in Europe from Normandy to the Rhine River. So all this is out there now, and it's really worth having a dig into it, all the information relating to it. Uh, the book of the units arrived in England in may forty four shortly before d day and uh, the brainchild of Colonel Billy Harris and Major Ralph Ingerson, which were both American military planners based in London uh, the unit consisted of carefully selected groups of artists, engineers, professional soldiers, draftees. Uh, and some famed artists, uh, such as fashion designer Bill Blass, painter Ellsworth Kelly, and photographer Art Kane. So from that, they managed to put together a, you know, a ridiculously qualified um, group of soldiers with good officers. Many were West Point graduates or uh, from former Army specialized training programs. Uh, and it was said to have one of the highest IQs in the Army, averaging 119 um, I can think of five people in my section that couldn't put that amount of IQ on the table if they all stood together and took the same <laughs> test. You added them up. Uh, they wage war with inflatable tanks and vehicles, fake radio traffic sound effects, even phony generals, uh, using imagination and illusion to trick enemies and thought to have helped redirect forces around Europe to key places, holding you know, making them not able to reinforce and move to in support of other unit systems as well. So yeah, I, I think it's a, I tried to pick something that was probably a little less known about and hopefully there'll be a few people that listen to the show that think, you know what, I might just have a quick look into the ghost army of the second world war.
4: Very interesting. Very, very interesting.
5: Um, yeah. So Fusag specifically, I mean, I did mean, the deception efforts by the allies, Uh, against the Germans throughout most of World War II was uh, really widespread. Another really fun one to read about is something called Operation Mincemeat. I don't know if this is run by the exact same bureau that Gaz is talking about, but if you ever get a chance to read about Operation Mincemeat, um, they literally scooped up uh, the corpse of a bum who had died on the – he had drank himself to death. He, He died in an alley somewhere in London.
1: Mm-hmm. and
5: uh, they used his corpse. I'm actually not kidding about this. Um, and they created this absolutely fantastic uh, uh, identity for him. And they put him, in, obviously, in a British uniform. They handcuffed a, 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 a briefcase to his wrist. They gave him theater tickets to a show that was actually playing in London at the time. They had to make sure it was for the right dates and, I mean, everything. They went absolutely crazy on this deception
3: yeah, effort. They made him look like a total spy.
5: And they uh, and then they ditched him out of a plane off the coast of Spain. They didn't give him straight to the Germans. That would be too obvious. So they make sure the Spanish found him. And then the Spanish, who, sorry, uh, were pretty friendly with the Germans uh, during most of World War II, um, would eventually uh, send this over to uh, German Abwehr, which is, again, the word for defense. It's basically German intelligence, um, non-SS-related intelligence, non Gestapo related intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that was about uh, where the Americans were going, or where the Allies, I should say, where the Allies were going to land in the Mediterranean, Sicily or Sardinia. And that was a big deception that really worked. Specifically for D-Day, we're talking about FUSAG, First U.S. Army Group. Um, It never existed. Um, It was the fictitious unit uh, that was pretty much created by, I think, the people that Gaz is talking about. Um, Patton was supposed to be in command of that. Uh, even though Patton wasn't really doing anything, they pretty much just put him up in a fancy hotel and said, you know, sit here for three months. Um, the room service is great. Don't destroy the minibar kind of a thing. <laughs> and uh, how effective it was, um, it was pretty effective. One of the big things that really worked with FUSAG was, again, it, it sort of keyed into another really great area of British intelligence, and that was the whole ultra source. We have the Enigma codes. Uh, or we or the british had cracked the enigma machine mostly due to the polish before the world before the war even started the, the poles just gave an enigma machine intact um to the to the british so the british get a lot of credit for cracking the enigma code however the poles don't get nearly enough credit cuz the poles gave them the first big break uh, in that they gave them a complete enigma machine and the code books for it, um right before the war started However, the machine kept being upgraded and the codes kept changing, so British intelligence had to step, you know, had to really, um, you know, keep up with it. If you don't think that affects your everyday life today, this is the invention of what most scientists consider the world's first modern computer. So, if you use computers in your life, you can thank the British at Bletchley Park. Um, It was the first actual computational machine that would use some sort of binary-based mathematical logic uh, to crack some of these German codes as the German codes kept changing, and these Enigma machines kept getting more and more uh, sophisticated. And uh, nevertheless, the British kept on top of it the whole way through. The British were reading the Germans' mail the whole way through the war, and they realized that the Germans suspected, just to begin with, that the the Allies were going to land in Normandy at a place called Pas-de-Calais. It's a town in France. If you look at a map, it is right across the uh, English Channel from Dover. It is where the English Channel is the narrowest, and it's where an invasion would be easiest. Uh, To kind of key back to what we were talking about before, this was totally going to be the the avenue used by the Germans in sea line when they were basically going to do D-Day in reverse. They were going to invade uh, Great Britain from France. Now we're talking about invading France from Great Britain. The Germans say, well, we were going to do this four years ago. This was our plan. Let's just assume that they're going to do it the same way with us. And they were looking already at Pas-de-Calais. I think part of the very simple genius uh, of this whole deception effort and where we really get into um, what Gaz was talking about, how they were the con men, and this is kind of how a con man works. A con man doesn't start by telling you a lie. A con man starts by asking you some questions. They want to learn a couple things about you. And then they're going to craft their lie to reinforce perceptions you already have. So via Ultra, the British intelligence already knew that the Germans pretty much expected the Allies to land at Padi Calais. And they said, OK, we're going to go ahead and reinforce that. We're going to make sure we're, we're going to reinforce that pre-existing suspicion. And that was pretty much the whole point of, uh, of USAC. how effective the rubber tanks were and the big inflatable vehicles that everyone sees on YouTube. And, Oh, that would be fun to have one of those. I put it in my backyard and make a waiting pool for my kids out of it or something. I mean, I honestly don't think that was very effective because that's the reason they did all that was to fool enemy reconnaissance planes. Mm-hmm. I, Highly question how effective German Luftwaffe reconnaissance over Great Britain was by 1944. I don't think too many German planes were flying over Great Britain in 1944. What was hugely effective, however, was all that simulated radio traffic. They literally just set up like 50 different radio stations across uh, the southern, south, uh, southeastern part of Great Britain and just started sending radio messages to each other. You know, they were pretty much almost like us playing a game over Skype. You know, they were just pushing these little fictitious units around over a telecommunications network. And if you didn't know any better, and if you just kind of linked into one of our Skype calls, you might say, holy crap, these guys are fighting a real war, almost like Ender's Game. Well, the Germans did think that, and they thought that uh, an army group, that's got to be at least 12 divisions, uh, were getting ready to invade out of Great Britain into France via Pas-de-Calais. Now, of course, we were going to invade France, but it was going to be several hundred miles away at... Uh, at Normandy, and here's where you get sort of the empirical evidence as far as how effective it was. For at least 36 hours until at least midday on June 7th, uh, most of the officers in the OKH, sorry, OKH was, uh, was Russia, OKW, most of the senior officers, the staff officers in the OKW, were convinced that Normandy was a very, very large diversionary attack and that the real attack was going to come at de Calais and it was 36 hours that several German panzer divisions, mostly in the 15th Army and in the uh, operational reserve of um, Army Group B and, and uh, over, over Command West. I can't remember the actual name for it in German right now. Um, basically, the commands of Rommel and von Rundstedt, um, they could have hit back very, very, very hard um, while that beachhead was still very tenuous, especially at the Omaha beach sector. And they didn't. Those panzers... Took almost 36 hours to get released from OKW reserve because everybody from Hitler on down was convinced it's coming up Patti Calais. The real one's coming up Paddy Calais. This is a great big deception effort. This is a big diversionary attack. When of course the opposite was the case. So how effective was it? I for those first 36 hours it was pretty effective, and those were some crucial 36 hours. So absolutely, it was very effective. Um, in summary,
2: for sure.
4: Wow. A lot of moving parts there. Okay, Gaz, who is your person you wanted to talk to? Gaz? do we lose Gaz? Hello? Jim, you there? Uh-oh. Uh, uh, yes,
6: I'm still here. Yeah, I was caught then.
1: Oh,
4: sorry.
6: Um, I was still on mute, strangely enough, and chomping away at my <laughs> microphone as always. Um so the uh the person that I would like to talk to is a captain in the SOE, the special operations executive, called Patrick clay for More. And um yeah, it's a it's a story that captured my attention quite a while back. There was a series done by the BBC in the last sort of three or four years mm-hmm. where they reenacted the SAO training, the special Operations executive training and what they were able to teach them in the few weeks that they had them before they were dropped into, uh, well, enemy-held areas of Europe. Uh, Patrick Lay, for more, Um, he was um, basically tasked (laughs) with an unusual job. Uh, Him, alongside his colleague William Stanley Billy Moss, led a team that carried out the kidnapping of a German general on Crete. Uh, On the 26th of April, 1944, together with the local resistance, they kidnapped General Heinrich Kribe, then drove him through 22 German checkpoints in his own car before abandoning it and then bundling into the mountains. Uh, They were pursued by German forces, managed to make it to the south coast and were taken by boat to Egypt. Um, I would just love to... (laughs) One, who came up with that plan? to how the hell did they get through 22 German checkpoints with a kidnapped general in the vehicle with them? Uh, I think it's just uh, one of those real unusual stories uh, from from some of the smallest elements, uh, the smallest cogs in the machine that was all the actions of 1944 specifically. Uh, and to, to make all the way, to to get all the way to Crete, to then kidnap a general, make it all the way back into Egypt is is just mind-blowing to me. So, yeah, I'd like to have a chat with him and get the how nervous we are when, you know, checkpoint two and then checkpoint, did it just get easier or by checkpoint 21 one we're like, oh, we're almost there. Please don't do it now. Please don't do it now.
4: (laughs) Very cool. Interesting. I had not heard of him. All right. Who would like to go next? Anybody? Or I can go. All right. I'll Uh, go. Go ahead.
3: I was going to say, I'll I'll go. Go ahead. So, uh, you know, Wednesday. When I was thinking about uh about d day i kind of so I got logistics on my mind because it was a crazy logistical feat in preparing uh you know for the uh the invasion you know it was over seven million tons of supplies that uh that we shipped to, to the u k from uh, the u s uh and over uh four hundred and fifty thousand tons of ammo which mm-hmm. just makes me jealous because i can't find a box of ammo i can afford these days uh-huh. but uh you know can you can you imagine you know the logistical efforts there you know oftentimes in the in the army we would say that uh you know intel and and ops is for amateurs and uh logistics is is for professionals
1: mm-hmm. and
3: being an ops guy uh i always call bs but there's a lot of truth to it logistics is not easy you know Uh, It's a lot easier saying I'm going to attack this, that, and then come up with a strategy. But trying to the the logistical uh, train to support all of that and actually make it happen is is, uh, a really tough nut to crack. Especially when you look at we got to go across the Atlantic Ocean to do this, right? You know, so the so you know I I'm just amazed at the amount of stuff that uh, we were able to push over ahead of. Uh, that invasion in order to support uh, all of those troopers that were going to be going into into Normandy you know so that that was kind of my my thought is uh, you know it's not just uh, an operational uh, uh, achievement but it's a huge logistical challenge uh, prior to that and then going forward uh, as well but especially you know getting things prepped and just trying to get it across the ocean and ready to go and Make it deliverable, uh, you know, to the, to the coast of France. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty amazing feat. So, you know, props to the logistics dudes that were able to pull that off.
5: Uh, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. We were maybe unofficially comparing Overlord to Sea Lion. Could Sea Lion have started? Absolutely. Would it have worked? Almost certainly not. And the biggest reason is probably logistics. Also, the Germans didn't have any unified command. They didn't have an Eisenhower. Um, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army had their own chiefs, and they did not have an overall um, person in charge, uh, at least until you got to Hitler himself. And yeah. Hitler was no military genius, you know, <laughs> suffice it to say. Right. Um. So, yeah, but especially logistics. The fact that the Germans, their landing fleet was basically a whole bunch of river barges that they stole from the Dutch. Um, They didn't have anything like a Higgins boat. They didn't have special, I mean, not only supplies, but special vehicles, special boats, special equipment. Um, We talk about the Mulberries. They built their own port. I've seen the the wreckage of this. I went over to to, to Normandy uh, a couple years ago. I hit every single site there is. The the wreckage of it is still there. Um, They built their own undersea pipeline. I mean, this is stuff the Germans couldn't even conceive of. So as far as, um, you know, invading one way, as it would have worked, invading the other way, it probably didn't, wouldn't have worked, um, at least not in the long run. Again, it comes down to logistics. Yeah, I I completely agree.
3: You know, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, we think of the glamorous, uh, which anyone that's been to war will quickly realize that that's uh, a fallacy. But we think of the glamorous uh, combat actions going on and not, you know, how we get there and how we support all the people that are that are performing those actions so uh you know that's why that's why i said you know i i kind of keyed in on uh the logistical side of of this operation and just what an amazing feat it would be and what a nightmare it would have probably been to (laughs) have to be the guy to figure all that out and pull it off
5: you just feel sorry for me because i'm not feeling well today so you decided to say something nice about supply
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i appreciate it
5: (laughs) (laughs) i do appreciate
3: it well, one, you're welcome, and two, uh, I, I, you know, as, as an as a guy that's, you know primarily done operations, uh, you know, throughout my 27 year career, I can tell you that uh, uh, while it's stupid when they say uh, without supply uh, bullets don't fly, uh, it's also kind of true. So, <laughs> I mean, it, you you got to get your stuff there, or it doesn't matter how many dudes you got there. Now you got dudes that aren't equipped to complete their task. You know, so uh you know and this was a, a a feat of just enormous magnitude so you know kudos to to those geeks that were able to figure it out because i'm sure there were some egg-headed dudes working on that
2: hey and i'd like to piggyback off of that you know it's it, in addition to the supply and the operations piece it is the synchronicity of how you know they were building the mulberries and You know they were doing all of this stuff at the same time, just and they all hit the same deadline. And you know, working with any long term ops, they're like, hey, you know, and and this isn't anything on supply, but you know, it's like you know, sometimes ops doesn't know how this one thing is acquired, you know, and we don't realize that it's not like ordering reams of paper, you know, it's you know a lot more to it. The 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 complexities and you know they were running around um england with inflatable tanks and stuff like that how are they hiding you know the material for the pipeline and the mulberries and just the enormous amount of stuff that had to be brought over
3: it, it was amazing yeah to that lots of moving moving parts there
2: and but synchronizing the deliverable yep. i you know seeing that fail enough times i guess maybe that's what really impresses me yeah no yeah. i absolutely
3: Yeah. You know? and uh so for my uh for my memory uh i've a i've a couple of world war 2 vets and one's a korea uh vet but i wanted to make mention of them so uh these are all uh comrades of of mine that uh were in my vfw post and passed away this spring so Uh, our uh, our yeah Uh, mine i'm the commander i own and operate
1: it (laughs) (laughs) our (laughs) comrade
3: no he's my comrade i claim him all moving on (laughs) but uh ed oldest uh navy vet served on the saratoga during world war ii uh, Earl McMahon, army vet. He was a, uh, an admin NCO. So that was the guy that pushed all your paper and got you your orders and promotions, uh, pushed through and all that good jazz. Uh, another world war two vet. And then, uh, Emmett Healy, uh, who was a, uh, he's actually a career war vet. Uh, but, uh, I wanted to make mention of, of him as well. Cause, uh, near and dear to our heart, uh, uh Emmett was, uh, an artillery man. And he was a part of the delaying action at the Chosen Reservoir, hmm. and uh, I have a copy of his DD-214 uh, that he gave the uh, our post when he, uh, you know, for uh, to prove that he was eligible for membership. And on the back of it, he wrote, uh, you know, cursive in his handwriting. It says, "The worst six days of my life." <laughs> well, I the bad. Chosen
5: Reservoir was no joke, man.
3: Right. Right, absolutely. In, uh,
5: in Pennsylvania, a little while ago.
3: Yeah, that's that's a tr- when, when, you,
5: when you're when you're in the Marine Corps, they definitely teach you about that one.
3: Yeah, and and he was a he was an Army guy. He was one of the uh uh like it's one of the Army uh, artillery units that supported uh, uh, the Marines coming out of uh, uh chosen.
5: Well, what's what's often forgotten because the Marines get all the glory at chosen. I mean. <sighs> The the Chosen Reservoir was a big body of water, obviously, and as the Chinese were kind of going around both sides of it, there were forces on both ends of the Chosen Reservoir. army, I I think it was part of 7th Infantry, Um, the army had at least half of what was going on at Chosen Reservoir. I mean, you ask most people on this, well, first of all, if anyone even knows what Chosen Reservoir was, but you ask anybody who knows the basics about Chosen Reservoir, it has an identity as a Marine battle, which actually isn't true. Um, even the British were involved at Chosen Reservoir, and our Panzer Leader game of Chosen Reservoir, we were careful to uh, include Army, British, and Marines
0: um, in there all
5: together, so absolutely, um, yeah. and Chosen yeah. Reservoir, man, that's that, that's a holy crap, that's every Thanksgiving, every Thanksgiving, as you're having your target, remember the Chosen Reservoir, that's right at the end of November, 1950. Yep. Yeah, what
2: a, we, what a, we, what a, the amount of uh, ammo or the artillery Rounds fired.
3: Oh, so yeah, in six days, uh, the uh, uh, army artillery unit there fired over a hundred thousand rounds. Wow, a hundred thousand rounds in under a week. Can you imagine Amazing. that? You because know, yeah. well, you know, when you're
5: basically I, two battalions—one marine battalion, one army battalion—and you're being encircled by eight Chinese divisions, divisions. Yeah. It's time to fire off some artillery.
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, so, so I kind of have an appreciation for that. My first three years active duty, I was an artilleryman. And you're picking up that round, whatever caliber it is. You know, uh, they had all sorts of different stuff there. But you're picking that up by hand. You're putting that into a breach by hand. You're closing that breach by hand. And you're firing it by hand in almost all of these vehicles. So, you know, it's it's not like, a, like an auto-loading tank Kind of uh, kind of situation, and I'm here to tell you, uh, I I'm 155 uh, millimeter round, uh, you know, AK weighs the bullet itself weighs about 78 pounds plus the powder, powder separately loaded. But that's that's a lot of humping. Yeah, That's, it is. that's, that's a lot of dudes working, you know. And most of those uh, those howitzers uh, again are hand operated. It's cranked. It's dudes turning wheels uh, to elevate the press, traverse. You know, there was, there's some uh, mechanized stuff, uh, but the majority of it was not. So that's, I mean, that's all the, you know, the, the sweat of their brow and uh, the strain of their back getting that stuff done. So just a, just an amazing feat again. And, and it's not like they had multiple crews for each tube. No, generally speaking, it was, You've got, you know you're assigned to this gun, and you do it. Now, if a gun goes down, you know they would cross level those those people uh, to another crew, either to relieve them or to plus them up to full strength. But yeah, you know it's you you and your gun section, and you're just having at it. Uh, I mean that's basically a week for six weeks or six days, pretty much, wow. pretty much for those guys. All right. And the military f- figure that, uh, that yeah. I would like to, like to talk to, uh, kind of ties, he's he's modern, he's not World War II, uh, but it kind of ties back into the logistics of it. Uh, and this would be the conversation I wanted to have would be general David Petraeus, yeah. you know, he ran the, uh, pretty much ran the logistics for desert storm mm-hmm. and, uh, You know, I, I've met General Petraeus a couple of times. I've had a couple of brief conversations with him, but, uh, you know, at that time, you know, we were talking, you know, in 2007, 2008 in Iraq. So we weren't talking about the, uh, the first Gulf war, but I I would love to have that conversation uh, with that guy, just to, just to see what kind of a pain in the ass it is to, to make all that happen, especially in in a, a modern environment where you're, uh, your, your combat forces can literally, and in some cases did outrun their supply train. Right. You know, so trying to synchronize all that, I think that would be an interesting conversation.
4: I think, yeah, it would be interesting. All right. All right.
3: What you, you, what get, you got bill.
4: Okay. So, uh, for D day, uh, believe it or not, this is my topic. And this might be a shocker for all of you. Uh, are airborne forces, were they really necessary during D day? Um, Shocker. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because there was a lieutenant colonel um, who wrote. I think it was in the Army Times about a year or so ago about the necessity of uh, airborne forces. He was speaking mostly in modern day, but he went all the way back to World War II and the you know the amount of loss and you know the re- equipment required to move these people. And you know his point is is that he didn't feel that it you know. They weren't necessary. Um
2: And they quickly retired him, right?
4: I don't know what happened to him. And you know what? And he was airborne. He was like with seventy fifth and I think it was with the eighty second at some point. You know. But sometimes, you know, but he you know, he went to war college and he's got advanced degrees, yada yada. I think sometimes the more education you get, the dumber you get, you know. Um in real life things. Yeah. So. He
3: he may have had to, had to write a paper for the war college and was just looking for a good topic.
4: I mean, that's you know, something, very possible. something
3: controversial that yeah. uh, people will pick up on.
4: Yeah, yeah, and something that I, I've
3: done over two million times already.
5: Yeah, yeah, I, 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 it's in the old days we used to call it revisionism. Nowadays we call it clickbait. Yeah, where right. it's yeah you you sort of put out a deliberately contentious um, uh, idea. Now, I I kind of I don't want to steal the topic. I kind no, of ahead. know what he's talking about, uh-huh. but uh, I'll I'll go ahead and let you, and let you finish. Uh, you know, posing his initial okay um,
4: position. Well, so you know, again, you know, he was questioning the necessity or you know the the feasibility of airborne uh, forces. You know, saying it, you know if you look at the amount of losses versus what was achieved versus the equipment and transportation um, modes that are necessary to move these people. He felt it wasn't an effective use of uh, materials and troops. I respectfully disagree with him. Um, I can't think of a, another way where you can move that many people in a rather quick and put them into a battlefield as quickly. Now, people will probably disagree with me and say, you know, you could do this, you could do you, But when you have a contested uh, airfield or battle area, when you can drop basically uh, an entire brigade, battalion, almost division, if you really had to, um, you know, literally within 20, 30 minutes, depending obviously on the aircraft and what's available, um, you know, put boots on the ground to cause as much disruption behind enemy lines as possible, you know. Now, in the modern way, people say, well, you got rockets and missiles and, you know, drones and all that. But when you, But what is the ultimate goal of warfare? It's to eliminate the enemy forces and hold ground, right? If you can't hold the ground, you're not going to achieve the final mission unless you totally just eliminate the enemy, right? So go ahead, Chris. What were you going to say?
2: To answer your question, hold ground. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So, you know, aircraft can't hold ground. Um, You know, everybody says, well, it's an air war these days. You know, it's all fought in the skies and, you know, you know, A lot of ships are outdated because everything's, you know, aircraft or rocket or whatever. But when it comes down to it, you have to hold the ground. Um, So, you know, if you need to get a foothold in somewhere quick so you can establish an airfield or, you know, a a place to hop off from, especially in a landlocked country, um, you know, that's what you got to do. You know, and you can put a lot of people on there quickly. Now, when it comes to D-Day, uh, again I personally felt that the airborne operation was necessary was it um performed properly you know no I mean there was all kinds of screw ups and you know now it's not taking anything away from those guys you got to remember you know you got these C47s um flying in you know the DC3 C47s and they're getting their asses shot off by all the flak and stuff that's you know coming up at them um, you know, speaking of the movie Band of Brothers, I thought they did a pretty good job of showing, you know, what it's like to be in an aircraft, you know, during, you know, an operate, you know, an airborne operation when they're getting, you know, flak and everything, and you know, getting off the airplane and you know, all that stuff. So, um, but you know, I personally felt, um, airborne is necessary. It's just another tool in the arsenal. Uh, the more tools you have the more options you have. So um, I, you know, again, I, I, there's a big, you know, for and against. Um, being a paratrooper myself and being a part of the 82nd, um, you know, seeing how all the parts move together and what you can, what that division can achieve, um, I definitely see that tool. So, Jim, what were your thoughts on that?
5: Okay, well, again, I'm going to go ahead and restrict myself to World War II. Okay um this was definitely a question that a lot of people asked airborne troops kind of came out in 1930 um or the 1930s the russians were experimenting with them as early as like 1933 so airborne troops or paratroopers were going to be a big uh or airborne operations in general were going to be a big thing in world war ii and people were like well how useful is this how is it worth the investment because they're very expensive Um, Number one, they have to be trained twice as hard, if not three or four or ten times as hard. Um, They have to have special equipment. They have to have a fleet of aircraft. Aircraft are very expensive. And they're really vulnerable. Um, Paratroopers on the deck are, you know, meat on the table to anything, uh, even even inferior troops. Those inferior troops have half-tracks, light armor, mortars, howitzers, you know, anti-tank weapons. Mm -hmm. Um, all the stuff that those paratroopers aren't going to bring with them, you're going to have a lot of problems. Um, the Germans had some of the best paratroopers in the war, and they came to this conclusion almost uh, in very short order. Crete, May of 1941, we recently did on the SITREP podcast.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, that was the last time the Germans ever dropped anybody out of an airplane. Um, the decision was made. We are no longer going to use our our Fall Schmeiger as airborne troops. It's just not worth it. Um, we're just going to use them as, you know, elite light infantry. And they used them as elite light infantry all over the war for the rest of the war. And they did very well. And, uh, you know, that almost kind of makes this guy's case a little bit. I mean, you get like the same amount of effectiveness for, you know, one third of the cost. Um, a lot of the other airborne operations that the uh, Americans tried in the early part of world war II went horribly awry. Uh, I've, the, the, the airborne operations that were dropped into uh, North Africa um, were so far off target that by the time I think it was the 82nd, by the time yep. the 82nd reached yep. the combat area, the, the campaign was over. It took them like a week to get to. Uh, you know, we we think the Normandy invasions were bad. This they, they dropped them like a week off target,
1: yeah,
5: or three or four days at least. Sicily was a disaster. Sicily turned into one of the largest friendly fire incidents in the history of the United States military, um, with uh, you know half of uh, I think one battalion, I think again it was the 82nd was blown yes, out of the sky me. by American flak because yep. they thought it was German bombers or something. Yep. Um, in Italy, they didn't go so hot. Uh, in uh, Operation Varsity, in, in the very end of the war, didn't go so hot. Like in March of 45, we tried an airborne drop into Germany. You know, Market Garden ultimately failed. Um, I don't know if that was the fault of the paratroopers, but uh, nevertheless, it was an operational failure. Uh, D-Day was, or Overlord, I should say, um, was the only time that anybody tried dropping paratroopers at night. Nobody had ever really done that before, at least not... uh, like operational ground units, like commandos and special agents and spies. I mean, that's one thing, but as far as like military units, right. Battalions, regiments, divisions. Um, yeah, it was the only time anyone had done it at night and it was kind of a train wreck. Um, the troops on the ground definitely recovered quickly. Uh, now as far as whether or not it was, you know, useful or not. um, When it comes to airborne troops or air mobile operations, now this is pre, this is World War II, this is pre-helicopter. You basically have three stages. You have paratroopers, you have glider assault troops, and then you have what the Germans called the Flieger Division, which was like an air mobile division. And first you would send in your paratroopers, and your paratroopers, you know, parachute on their back, jump out of the plane. And, you know, do what they can do once they hit the ground, the glider assault troops, they need at least some kind of area where at least they don't expecting much resistance
1: mm-hmm.
5: or that the paratroopers have already secured. At least that's how the Germans kind of used to do it. And they would land the gliders in there. The gliders have more troops in there. Also German gliders were very small compared to our gliders. And, uh, like our Waco gliders or the British Horsa gliders. Right. And the gliders would have like light artillery, even some very, very small vehicles. I think the British even had uh, the Tetrarch. They had a, a glider-borne tank they could actually drop in there. I don't know how all that worked. Um, but the gliders could bring in some degree of uh, heavier support. So your unit didn't have the life expectancy of a mayfly once it actually got hit by a serious enemy force. Right. Um, I, nothing against paratroopers. You can be as hard as coffin nails. You know, when a German comes down the road with a 105 millimeter howitzer inside an armored vehicle, you're not going to last very long. You know, all that training is not going to help you catch a, a mortar shell and throw it back. Um, and then after that, the Germans would have what they call, like I said, the Flieger division. They would just, okay, someone captured an airfield. Then we just fly in troops on those Ju 52s which is pretty much their version of the C-47, the Mm -hmm. the air transport planes. Um, So were the airborne forces needed in, uh, in, in Normandy? I would definitely say yes. They didn't wind up having the full impact that I think was expected, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So the reason we dropped in our airborne forces, I have a big map I'll actually show later on in, in, in the game that we're doing later today. Um, we're, okay, where the 82nd landed, where the 101st landed, and where the British 6th airborne landed. They more or less, to be very quick about it, landed on the wings of the invasion force. And their job was to hold certain bridges, certain crossroads, certain roads, certain towns to make sure that German armored reinforcements did not get into the flanks of the uh, of the uh, Allied invasion area. Yep. This is where you have Pegasus Bridge. Now, Pegasus Bridge was gliders. Yes. So I don't know if gliders is what he's talking about when he says airborne troops. British paratroopers did not reach um, Pegasus Bridge until way too late. They even have a small inside joke about this in the movie, The Longest Day. British paratroopers were there woefully late the gliders were right there on target i've been to pegasus bridge i've stood at this spot they have a little obelisk there that shows where uh, howard's first glider landed and it's like the distance from me to my car out in my parking lot like right now it's like they landed the, the gliders right there so the gliders were a lot more effective i think than some of the paratrooper units mm-hmm. and they definitely held those bridges there at Caen uh, by sword beach on the uh, on the eastern flank and kept our units like the 21st Panzer from really developing any meaningful threat against, again, um, the British 3rd Infantry that was coming ashore there at, uh, at Sword Beach. The Americans did the same thing on the other flank. There weren't really any German Panzer divisions there. Did we know that at the time? Probably not. Do we know how effective that deception effort that we were talking about earlier was going to be and those German Panzer reserves were going to be held in place for, 30, for 36 hours anyway? Again, a lot of times we didn't know how effective these other things were going to be. If those other efforts had not been as effective or if some of these German Panzer divisions were not where we expected them to be, places like San Mariglis could have been extremely important. Yeah. Um. If, you know, those are going to be avenues for, for German counterattack. So I understand kind of where the, the – if I understand the premise correctly, I understand where the premise comes from. I probably disagree two-thirds, but there is a case for it.
1: Yeah, um,
5: And this, the, the, the Fallschirmjäger syndrome, uh, to coin a phrase, uh, it, it takes place for the Americans as well. Um, later on in the war, probably the most important battle the 101st would, would, would fight is at Bastogne they did the tailgate jump. They jumped out of a truck.
1: Yep.
5: Um, and again, if you actually take a look at the track record for Al, and you take an honest look at it, and you say, okay, I'm going to forget the fact that I'm an American. I'm going to forget the fact that I'm a veteran. I'm just going to look at this in the analytical, you know, objective view. The airborne record is not that great as far as success rates. Um, so I, I kind of see where he's coming from. I don't know if I agree, but I I do see the position. Yep.
4: No, I mean, there's, there's always, you know, uh, a point to be made. Not, you know, I agree with some of it. Um, you know, I could counter some of those things like in Africa with the 80 second being, you know, dropped so far off their actual LZs, uh, or DZs. Um, that's where the pathfinders were created was after that, you know, um, because, you know, they didn't have those people on the ground to bring in the planes. Um, And then the friendly fire, instance, in Italy, um, that was just poor communication and identification. Not throw the Navy under the boat, but it was the Navy. Um, But, you know, it was a developing thing, you know, and as time has gone on, We've had to uh, adjust to the needs. But it'll be a topic, you know, it'll be like everything else. People say, well, is the tank necessary these days, you know. So uh, regardless, you know, it's always the for and against. I just thought it was an interesting – I personally think the – even though with people missing drop zones and the stupid D-bags breaking uh, their lanyards um, and people losing their equipment, you know, know, and having those things passed out – very last minute as they're prepping to the jump, instead of training with them, created a lot of things. There were so much moving parts and last minute decisions um, that affected some of that as well. So, on top of that, uh, who oh, I can
2: I? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Can I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Send my two uh, cents in there. Now, even though I'm aviation and I, uh, you know, we we trained from the beginning of never uh, leaving a, a perfectly functioning aircraft. Um, I don't. Think you get rid of their airborne troops? You minimize the risk of their use, you know that all risk assessment thing.
4: Uh-huh.
2: Um, but you don't get rid of that tool. You don't get rid of that option. Right. You want them to. You want the enemy to think. You know these these guys can come from anywhere. Yeah. And just that threat. I mean, I know it's not um, old time, but what was it uh, when Colin Powell was Secretary of State? He told the dude in Haiti, what
4: was it, um, the 82nd in the air? Yeah, yeah, they li- literally were wheels up in the air. They were just a couple hours out, and then he, you know, capitulated, so.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's easy to pick on the 82nd, uh, but, um, you know, there is a bunch of respect there. Yeah.
4: All right, so uh, for who I'd like to remember— um, his name was Staff Sergeant Bill Cheney. Uh, he was my, uh, crew chief instructor over at, uh, the National Guard unit I used to belong to. Um, believe it or not, this was what, Chris, it was right two thousand two thousand one. 2000, 2001. Um, right, right before, uh well, before and during, uh, 9-11. He was actually a, a Vietnam vet, and he was still, you know, in 2000, um, act, you know, he was actually active guard. So, um... He uh, died in um, Iraq after 9-11. Um, you know, they never disclosed the cause of death. Um, I just got a message saying that he had passed uh, while over there. Uh, it, they didn't say combat-related, but, you know, something else, so who knows. But um, he, he made a great impression on me, you know, from telling me his experiences as, you know, a crew chief door gunner on Huey's in, during Vietnam. And, you know, and bringing those experiences over to Blackhawks and, you know, everything he taught me and just he was just a really awesome guy. Um, You know, they don't make them like that anymore. So uh, every Memorial uh, Day, um, I think of him. So and there's other friends and people I know that we've lost, but uh, he's the one that comes to mind. And then for my uh, war historical person, I know this is not. Uh, world war two related or d day related but I would love to have a sit down with general George Armstrong Custer and the first question I ask is, what the hell were you thinking because
3: um, uh, i, re- I don 't accuse him of thinking
4: because <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know is he is was he as arrogant as people make him out to be um,
5: I'm not an expert, but I do know he was intensely unpopular among other cavalry officers in of the federal army in the Civil War.
4: Really? Okay.
5: Guys like Sheridan, um, uh, Buford, absolutely couldn't stand the guy. Wow. Now was that because I don't know? I don't. I, that's literally all I know. I don't know if it was justified or if they just didn't like his gotcha. hair or he stank or, or whatever. But he <laughs> he did not like him.
3: Gotcha. He did have glorious hair, though. He did. He did. At well, least
5: and my
4: understanding is that when he was killed, they did not scalp him. Uh, they left his hair, which I find, um, you know.
3: Oh, I'd have totally taken that if I was them. That would be hanging over my mantle.
4: Right. So, um, you know, he, he, the reason being outside of just the questions of what were you thinking and why did you do that, you know, that goes against everything you were taught at West Point and blah, 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 is he was, a uh, believe it or not, he had an impact on my life as a kid um because i spent 3 years um from how old was i uh, like 7 8 and 9 years old at fort riley kansas and uh that was the home of the 7th cavalry before they started their winter campaigns and their campaigns up north which eventually led to the little bighorn so his house is there it's now a museum the cavalry museum is at uh, fort riley um so you know w- we in school, learned a lot about the Indian Wars and um, the cavalry and, you know, Old West in general. And, you know, I don't want to get political, but, you know, people these days say we don't learn a lot about alternative history. It's just whatever, you know, certain people decided we want to read in the books. That's not how we were educated in Kansas back in the 70s. We learned about, you know, Wounded Knee and, you know, the – the horrors that American Indians went through during, you know, those times and all that. So it wasn't all yay, yay, U.S. Army, you know, cowboys versus Indians type thing. We we really learned the history. So it made a huge impact in my life. And, you know, I've read books and things about Custer and Little Bighorn. I have never been to the battlefield yet. I eventually would like to go. Um and I do have a, a game. Jim makes fun of me because I have all these games. I have the Alamo, the Little Bighorn, uh, Isla and Wanda, Rourke's Drift. You know, and he, he makes fun of me that I have all these last stand uh, games. I just find them interesting. You know, what people were thinking during that time. How did they react or how could you change history? Um, I mean, look at even 13 hours, you know, or 13 days, 13 hours. It technically was a last stand. You know, you're surrounded by the bad yep. guys. And... um so I, I like the idea of the human fortitude in conflict and how do you come out of it? You know, do you come out of it bravely, you know, regardless of the outcomes or is it a total flop? So that's, that's it for me. Um, I that, don't
5: know if I've ever made fun of you for it, but it was, it <laughs> is something I have noticed. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things you pick up on. I've I've always kind of said, uh, especially more recently, I can tell what kind of war gamer somebody is by asking them who their favorite character in Kelly's Heroes is. You know, there's just certain things that uh, you kind of pick up on. It's like, hey, all these, you know, games that Bill likes to uh, either play, read about or whatever, there's a a certain theme kind of running through them. And uh, it's interesting.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's... I like the test of the human spirit or, you know, fortitude. So, and then how does it equate to military success or defeat? Um, so, all right, guys, uh, does anybody else have anything they want to uh, talk about? Cause we're getting close to, we're having to wrap the show because Jim and I have a date for St. Mary Glees. So, so um,
2: Go ahead. I do have, I don't have all, all, all three of the questions for you. Uh uh-huh. Um, I know this might be a little, you know, cheesy, um, but someone from the past that I would like to talk to uh-huh. would be my father. Um, every Memorial Day weekend, he would he would get tore up, you know, remembering his buddies that he lost in Vietnam, uh-huh. and he would never talk about it. And I was hoping after I came because I, I knew I was going to Iraq. Um, you know, I, I was hoping that when I came back, you know, he would be able to open up with me.
1: Yeah.
2: Unfortunately, he passed before that. So, you know, it, it'd, been, it'd be nice to be able to talk to him about that. Yeah. If that makes any sense.
4: No, it makes total sense. I, I appreciate that. And again, uh, this long ramble we had today, you know, I, some people have gone, what does this have to do with war game? We gave you meat. We gave you substance to think about different scenarios, different conflicts, uh, information as how you can relate this to different war games, uh, whether it's mentor based or, you know, board game-based or hex encounter-based. There are so many options out there. You know, like today, I have Avalon Hill Midway sitting downstairs, um, and I have the D-Day, Avalon Hill D-Day, and Jim and I are going to play Valor and Victory here shortly on the live stream and I'm going to be playing the good old All-American Division, the 82nd Airborne, as we jump into St. Mary Glees. Um, so you know. try to. Oh, no, we will. There, there's no try. <laughs> there's no freaking try.
2: Yeah, gravity still works. They'll right? fall out of the plane. So yeah. Whether it's there or not, you know.
4: Well, let me put it to you this way. As my dear, dear idol Yoda would say, do or do not, there is no try. So we will. So... Um,
2: how about this? I mean, you guys? You're not piloting the aircraft,
4: <laughs> so yeah. Um, you might
2: need the force
3: to get there, though. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
4: Man, all the haters. I tell you. Um, yeah. yeah. So, all right, guys. Um. But yeah, that's you know when we go on these long rambles, it's it's all war game related because you know it all ties up to giving you the meat and thought, brain power to think about how do I play this or hmm, I never thought of that. Maybe I should try that. So there you go.
3: Or who knows? Yeah. yeah, Who knew that historical wargaming, we might talk about history.
4: Right? (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. All right, guys. So this is Bill for the rest of the crew. We want to thank you for joining us for our D-Day special. Uh, Make sure you check out the uh, live stream or if you're – obviously the podcast is going to go out after the live stream, but – Check out the recording of the St. Mary Gleese uh, airborne operation um, using the Valorant Victory system. And uh, look out for all our other programming. We are four people away from hitting 500 subscribers or followers on Facebook. We're at 500. There. We're at 580 subscribers on YouTube. We should hit 600 by the end of June. I hope.
3: Killing
5: it. Yeah. I, I am hoping that we hit our one-year goal by June 30th.
4: That would be awesome, right?
5: Which is like exactly what we did last year, almost to the hour. Yeah. It was it was like 9 p.m. on June 30th last year. We hit our one-year goal exactly halfway through the year. So maybe we'll do it again this year.
4: That would be awesome. We only need 20, guys. So everybody out there, if you like, share, subscribe, and tell at least five friends or coworkers or you know, we're gaming buddies uh, about our channel. Uh, we will definitely hit that in no time flat.
2: Yeah, grab your or white or brave at looking at it.
4: Yeah. So, all right, guys. Yeah, be,
3: be brave and share that publicly because you'd be surprised how many of your friends who, even though you're like, ah, I don't want to share my, my nerdness with them, uh, are closet nerds. They you might, know they, you I, know. I, they they might be really interested in that and be like, "Cool, here's a safe place where I can get introduced to the hobby as well."
5: You know what? You know, and sometimes we also talk there's, about history. There's,
3: uh, there's,
5: <laughs> there, when it comes to history, uh, historical gaming, we have a little bit of extra protection when it comes to that. Yeah, I mean, let's face it: when you go up to somebody and you say, "Hey, I play with I play war games," oh yeah, yeah, we got Space Marines and Jedi, and oh god, you know, people just kind of glaze over and. I play Lord of the Rings and Hobbits. Okay, when you actually say, hey, we're doing, you know, parachute infantry regiment 505 at Samir Eglise later today, like it or not, know it or not, admit it or not, there is a certain sliver of additional respect that comes with
3: that. Yeah,
5: I agree.
3: I agree. Absolutely.
5: And I don't know if we should be
4: even using the word nerd anymore. I don't think the word nerd applies anymore. I think it's...
3: I wear it as a badge of honor. I like it. Right yeah, well,
5: there, there's nerd and geek. I can never remember which one is actually a compliment now and which one is still pejorative. Yeah. I think geek. I think, yeah, because you have like Geek Squad and Apple or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I think geek is uh, actually a lot more of a compliment nowadays. Yeah. So, yeah,
3: well, I think, the little, say, I think of the geeks as more of the IT dudes, you know, the, the really. You know, smart guys like you and Chris that can, you know, make say, computers. What, what, are you, what are you trying to say, man? I mean, <laughs> well, I on that note, not we're going to get I mean, the hell out of before here before the show. I can't even get. Yeah, to, don't <laughs> me, <laughs> all right,
4: guys. We're going to we get out of here UFO so we can get something. going. Thank you, guys, everybody, <laughs> and we will see you guys soon.
3: Bye, all. You have been listening to the Citrep podcast. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Make sure you like and subscribe to all of our channels on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch and Discord. Remember to join us every other weekend for a new episode of the podcast. And don't forget our other programming on Wednesdays and Sundays. Thanks for listening.